Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, conflict in the Middle East. So, Richard, um, in the last couple of weeks, we've seen a resurgence of violence between the Palestinians and the Israelis of a kind we haven't really seen for a while. Hamas lobbing rockets into Israel, a lot of them thankfully being shot out of the sky by the Iron Dome system. But you wrote about this this week in your column for Defining Ideas, and I want to start with a pretty stark statement that you made therein. I quote, in this instance, as in all others, it is inappropriate to posit moral and legal parity between the two sides. Explain what you mean by that. Look, I mean, if you read many of the statements that came out about the conflict, they said, well, you have Hamas on one side with its legitimate aspirations. You have the Israelis on the other side with those. And what you're trying to do is to figure out how you broker peace between two equal parties. There was a column this morning in the New York Times by Thomas Friedman, which I thought was peculiarly inept, in which he said, well, uh, there are real devils. There is Netanyahu on the one side and there's Hamas on the other side. So that was a parody of bad people. Uh, but it seems to me that there, you have to start making the following distinctions. Who initiated the conflict and who was responding to it? This was not a conflict that the Israelis went uh, to begin by taking out certain key installations in uh, Gaza uh, owned by the uh, Hamas operations. It was Hamas doing indiscriminate firing on Israeli things to which there was then defense. And so it seems to me that aggression should be treated one way, self-defense should be another way. And in some sense, macabre as it may sound, you would rather have the aggressors suffer the greater number of casualties than the innocent party that's trying to defend itself. And when the United States decided to issue its particular statements about this, um, it kind of implicitly assumed all of that. It said, in effect, that, you know, you really want to make sure under these circumstances that uh, some of the neighborhood disputes that happened in Jerusalem are not going to be resolved inequitably for the Palestinians. And it also said that you have to make sure that this is the last day of Ramadan. So when you have battles over the mosque, you want to make sure that those things were equitably decided. Uh, but in fact, both of those assertions were wrong. Uh, the uh the dispute that you had in Jerusalem was a landlord-tenant dispute, and there was a rent strike, and it was being resolved through the Israeli court system. That's hardly a case of land occupation, the way in which it's been described by many. And it's one thing to attack a mosque when there's nobody in it. It's another thing to try to figure out what to do when people are stockpiling stones and throwing them at you outside the mosque, daring you to shoot on a facility which is holy in one sense. And so my own position about this is that I think uh, Hamas needs a good thwacking. Uh, it's a situation in which you cannot justify what is happening there on the grounds that there were antecedent wrongs dating back perhaps as far as 1948 or even earlier, so that there's perpetual open season no matter what happens in recent days. It is always a case of trying to even up the score, which is now 80 or 90 years old. I don't think you can make those arguments. One hopes that the ceasefire sticks. But one also hopes that the world doesn't sort of treat this as yet another occasion to bash Israel under circumstances in which it was by no means an aggressor, uh, but had to face a very serious threat uh, to its property on the one hand and more importantly to its people on the other. I want to go a little deeper on something that you mentioned there in passing. So a couple of incidents have been invoked by the Palestinian side as justification for this offensive. 
most prominently what you mentioned, this issue over evictions of some Palestinians in East Jerusalem. And I, I, I want to go a little deeper on this, Richard, because our listeners may have wildly varying conceptions of what's going on there, depending on which news sources they rely on. You know a thing or two about property rights. Explain to us what's going on here and whether it justifies the kind of indignation it seems to have engendered. Well, I mean, what happens is, uh, what I did is I read the New York Times account, and they're not really very, very good in, in terms of the fact that you get people like Nick Kristof saying there was another Israeli um, a land grab that happened to have taken place in a neighborhood which is called Sheikh Jarrah in East Jerusalem. Uh, but um, when you start looking at what's more happened in that particular case, is that this was property which had been acquired by the Israelis, and not the Israelis, but by Jewish groups by rabbis back in 1875. It had been under continuous Jewish ownership in the Ottoman Empire. Uh, it was dispossessed. The Jews were dispossessed from this property uh, during the confusion of the 1948 war when East Jerusalem fell into the hands of the um, of the Jordanians. Uh, and then it was recaptured. Uh, at that point, the Israelis who owned the property leased it out to Arabs on condition that they pay rent. The rent stopped being paid in 1993. And then there was an action to resume property possession, understanding landlord law, tenant law, that can't be described as some kind of a land grab. In fact, when I first read the story, I thought this was yet another instance in which some Palestinians who had outright title to land in East Jerusalem were forcibly evicted from their properties so that Jewish interests could take over. That's what the term land grab to me seems to um, suggest. And I just don't believe that that's an accurate kind of description. So what's happening, in effect, is you cannot treat as a reason for war, a cow's belly, as it used to be said. Uh, the fact that there is property disputes that are being resolved by a court of another nation, when there's not the slightest um, uh, statement or hint uh, that anything that's going on in these courts is irregular in any kind of a way. So I thought that that was kind of irresponsible. And the same thing was true when people started saying, oh, but this is um, Ramadan. You have to be very careful about what's happening at the Alaska Mosque uh, right there on the corner of the Temple Mount, when at the same time, during the fast month of Ramadan, a young Palestinian youth um, are gathering rocks and starting to throw them at other people. Uh, so, I mean, this was the statement that the United States government made. It was interesting. It was not made by the Secretary of State, Mr. Blinken. It was made by some lower-level official. Uh, but it, it, the only caution it had was about Israeli excesses. There was not a single statement there about Palestinian misdeeds. I think it has generally been assumed that the Biden administration has been kind of neutral in this case. And I don't think that's a wild um, uh, distortion of the situation. But a statement like this is not really neutral. It's trying to say, in effect, Israel, you've got the greater power, so you have to exert the greater caution. And it simply lets the rights and wrongs of the particular disputes that were referenced fall to the bottom of the cutting room floor. And I think that that's a mistake. So uh, this is a very difficult problem in general when you're dealing with Palestinian issues. You can spin every particular question. So it looks like there's another form of long-term systematic Israeli aggression. And then this particular instance could then file into other situations in which it said, you have to understand this grievance is, again, part of a long train of grievances that exist in East 
in East Palestine, in East Jerusalem, with the Palestinians. And what you then do is to start to talk about all those grievances as sources of uh, justification for the actions in question. The problem with that logic is that you can never, ever find a situation so long as the Israelis occupy the property that they do occupy in East Jerusalem, in which it's not a fit occasion for war. And it's that kind of a situation which means that you get a fundamental imbalance. If the Israelis try to do anything remotely like this, citing the past grievances against Jews, um, what would you hear the exact opposite? So to give you but one number, um, which Jewish organizations constantly stress, uh, there was massive displacement in 1948 on both sides. Uh, perhaps 750,000 Palestinians were either driven out or fled. Very difficult to figure out what's going on. But at the same time, about 800,000 Jews were driven out of Arab lands. I mean, it's not as though when you start going back to these situations that you have perfectly clarity as to who was the aggressor and who was not. Recall that it was not the Israelis who tried to upset the very fragile peace with the partition of 1947. It was the Arab nations that the moment independence was declared and the British pulled out, managed to invade uh, in 1948, uh, in the spring, May, I think it was. And it took a year of conflict before you reached the truce lines, which essentially set basically the boundaries that we have right now uh, for Israel, even though there's been no formal final peace. So to that point, if you and I did a show together not too long ago where we talked about the issue in the American context of uh, reparations for slavery, and, and that came to mind as I was preparing for this show, because with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and especially the Palestinian insistence on the right to re- right of return, there is a similar question at work about how far into the future you can carry these demands for past grievances. We're nearly 75 years removed at this point from a lot of the early grievances for which the Palestinians are seeking regress. How do you think about those kinds of claims? Well, my view about this is that rights to return are a dead loser at any particular point in time. There was a piece by a man named Beinart who said, look, I mean, it's easy for the Israelis to build houses, uh, but the question of building houses is not the problem. Mass infusion of people, a large fraction of whom are bitterly hostile to Israel and wish for its design, will essentially um, basically implode the Israeli state from the inside. There's no way that you can figure out who to keep in and who to let out. Even if you could do that, the change in the political balance between Jewish and Arab interests, in fact, would completely upset Israel as a Jewish nation. It's just not going to happen. Um, uh, these Arabs, um, the Palestinians, can be resettled in other lands. At one time, I had some vague hope that you could create an Arab nation out of the West Bank and Gaza with transportation rights over part of Israel. Uh, but what happens now is, having seen what happened in Gaza after the Israelis withdrew in August of 2005, it's very clear that they cannot possibly conceive of withdrawing from the West Bank, causing that to be an independent country in which these uh, Palestinians would have two rights, one, the right to arm themselves, and two, the right to invite foreign armies into their territories where they would be cheek by jowl with Jerusalem, a very difficult defensive situation. So the only thing I think that can really work today is something that nobody really wants, which is you kind of create a semi-autonomous 
autonomous zone inside Israel proper, in which all the local functions are governed by the Palestinians, so long as it's understood that the, the security risk will have to be coped at, not only by Palestinian authorities, but Israeli authorities, if it turns out that that should be necessary. Then what you try to do is to diffuse the larger tension by having trade develop across these barriers. Generally speaking, people who trade with one another find it very costly to shoot at each other, because if you shoot at your trading partner, you become poorer along with them. In fact, this is part of the pattern. The Israelis, I think, have tried pretty much to do this, but what happens is extremist Arab groups understand that if trade becomes a dominant mode of interaction between the two parties, uh, the claims of resentment are going to be diminished with the greater prosperity that trade brings. So what you see is uh, armed conflict in an effort to sever those kinds of trading relationships by forcing everybody to uh, choose sides. Things like that happened in the 1930s when the Israelis first came there. And I think that this Hamas move is exactly the same kind of a strategy. And so that being said, I just do not see at this particular point any way in which you could deviate from the current equilibrium. And that is not a happy equilibrium. I think in five or seven years, there'll be yet another assault in one form or another from Hamas into Israel. They'll be lobbing bombs. They may be trying to kidnap various kinds of people. They may be trying to make various sorts of incursions. They may try to start fires with incendiary weapons and the like of this. I think what we are in is a very unhappy, steady state. And if you start looking at the announcements that come out regularly from uh, Hamas and even even from many mainstream Palestinians, uh, their idea of a one-state solution is that all Israelis are either killed or expelled from the country. And so long as there's any fraction of the population that believes that, um, any kind of two-state solution is impossible. And a one-state solution is utterly, it's utterly beyond the pale. There will be no right of return, period. If the only way that will happen would be by mass force. And to the extent that the United States, with its diminished influence, still has any sway over there, I do think that it's guaranteed guarantee to Israel that it will defend its right to exist from foreign aggression is still probably a good promise. That doesn't mean that they'll give support under other sets of circumstances, but I think it's a case that if the Abraham Accords now dissolve under the pressure that we are now seeing, uh, what's going to happen is the influence of the United States in the Middle East is going to go to a low ebb, and what you will do is you'll see two sets of alliances. You'll see Iran and its uh, various proxies, perhaps even Turkey in alliance with it, and then on the other side, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, uh, Jordan, and everybody else who fears, in effect, that kind of a domination. So the United States will be removed to the level of a bit player uh, because we haven't been able to uh, assert our power responsibly. This is what happened when our President Barack Obama announced that there was a red line that could not be crossed. The red line was crossed, and he cut a deal with the Russians uh, so that it turned out he didn't have to do anything in response for it. I do think that Biden is like this. He has to face a very difficult problem because his own left wing within the Democratic Party Party, tends to regard Israel as a colonial nation, and is, by and large would be quite happy to see it uh, curtailed. It would be in favor of all sorts of very aggressive solutions. I don't think Biden is quite there, but I don't think he could ignore those folks. And to the extent that he has to parry his own party, uh, he's not going to be able to mount a strong defense of Israel in either a verbal sense or in a material sense. Uh, the Republicans are the only people who are doing that. The Republican National Committee was pretty clear on which side it came down, very strongly pro-Israeli. The Democrats were all but dither one way or the other. You've been listening to the Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. 
Remember, you can read Richard's column, The Libertarian, at definingideas at hoover.org. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please rate the show on iTunes or wherever you listen. For Richard Epstein, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.